Here's our world in 2017. Beautiful and terrible things have happened and will continue to happen. But we're asked to start this new year by not being afraid because this is what we are about, you and I. We hold hope for each other when hope is so very hard to find. And beneath the snow, we plant seeds that will grow in the spring. We are prophets of a future that's not our own. We cannot do everything, but we can do something. That's why we are asked to forget our perfect offering here in this new year. There is a crack in us, in you, and in me. And that is how the light gets in. The Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist Dave Barry began his year in review of 2016 this way. In the future, Americans, assuming there are any left, will look back at 2016 and remark, what the hell? <laughs> he says, we've seen some weird years. Remember 2000 when the outcome of the presidential election was decided by a very tiny group of Floridians who apparently attempted to vote by chewing their ballots? <laughs> or 2006 when the Vice President of the United States who claimed he was attempting to bring down a suspected quail shot a 78-year-old man, man in the face only to be ex exonerated after an investigation revealed that the victim was an attorney. I'm looking at you, Doug Brown, the attorney back in the corner, and Adrian over here. We've seen some weird years, but it, we've never seen one as strange as 2016. This was, according to Barry, the Al Yankovic of years. <laughs> if years were movies, 2016 would be a Plan 9 from outer space. If years were relatives, 2016 would be the uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving dinner wearing his underpants on the outside. <laughs> but as weird and as troubling as maybe this year has been, it wasn't without its wonder, too, especially for religious news. And when I say religion, I do not mean the zealot kind, and I do not mean the kind that you have to believe six impossible things before you shovel your driveway. I mean the kind of religion that actually brings people together, which is what the word actually means in the Latin, as you know. It means to tie together. That's what it means. So this year, I am inviting all of us into a mood of what I will call intentional tenderness. As we look back over the year's top religious stories, remembering as we do so that when it comes to religion, as with all things, it is easier to be ironic sarcastic and cynical than it is to be affirming and open-hearted and tender. So would you just take a deep breath with me? As we share our top 10 religious news stories of 2016, my 14th version of this sermon with you Remembering that, that mine is a free pulpit and yours is a free pew, which means that I get to speak my heart and you, should you be so inclined, get to disagree with me. 
because that's how we grow, actually. We push each other, and we learn from each other, and we stretch each other. All right, so number 10. Sex and tear down the fake nativity scene because we're replacing it with a real one. In a year that saw 4,600 migrants killed in Mediterranean shipwrecks while fleeing conflicts in Africa and Asia and Syria, and thousands of refugees seeking safety fueled an anti-immigrant rightward political shift in Europe, including Brexit or what Karen, my British spouse, referred to as Brexapocalypse. <laughs> and in a year when the now president-elect, more on him later, in the opening speech of his campaign referred to Mexican immigrants as murderers and rapists and promised to create a registry for all Muslim immigrants living here in the U.S. because you can't make the stuff up, stuff up, and if you did, it would be called hate speech. Three weeks before Christmas, a tiny Mennonite church in San Antonio, Texas, tore down its nativity scene in the front of its sanctuary to make room for an influx of immigrants being discharged from a local detention center. The church has a guest house that houses eight people and is frequently used as a short-term housing place for immigrants. But in the first week, the church housed, listen, 500 women and children, 500 most of them escaping violence in Central America. The church put down air mattresses in the sanctuary and space heaters in the fellowship hall. They put sleeping bags in the pastor's office and the Sunday school rooms to accommodate all of these people, leaving the pastor to joke, but not. We replaced the fake nativity scene with a real one this year. One has to wonder after this year, if Jesus were alive in America today, would he be deported? Number nine, putting the protest back in the name Protestant. Now, anytime that I am asked, and that is actually fairly frequently, if politics belong in church or the church belongs in politics, I'm reminded of the African proverb that says, pray but then you gotta move your feet. Meaning creeds, not deeds, meaning love needs to be put into action, and meaning politics need to hear the moral voice of religious communities. I'm also reminded of how Protestants, of which Unitarian Universalism is a part, got the name Protestant. They got the name from Martin Luther, who protested the Catholic Church, who sold front row tickets into heaven, or what we know as indulgences. And he protested that by doing what? By tacking 95 complaints to the front door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. In other words, we belong to raising voices and resisting the status quo and demonstrating with our bodies and our banners. We belong to a long storied history of protest, which is why Black Lives Matter protests continued this year and we hung the banner out front of our 1827 sanctuary and other clergy and religious communities participated following the very high profile shootings of African Americans by police. And then in Dallas, clergy in particular played a role in uniting that city 
after the deadly shootings of police officers there. I want us to remember that word, uniting, tie together, doing religious work. And then there were the religious activists, many of them Unitarian Universalists, who joined the Standing Rock Sioux members against the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota, which the Sioux say will follow water and sacred lands. One member of the tribe likened the pipeline to the equivalent of that energy company planning to drill underneath Jerusalem. That's what it's like for them. The protests gathered people from all over the world, Muslims, people from 90 native nations, various rock stars, a group calling themselves the Water Wookiee Warriors, whose pop-up camper had a Star Wars theme, and the arrival of veterans on motorcycles adept at winter survival. The feeling the pressure of the Army Corps of Engineers last month halted the project, but not before the energy company and our president-elect vowed to overturn the decision. And then, in two weeks, millions of women from across the country on the day after the inauguration will descend on D.C. to demonstrate against the ways the president-elect has objectified women and girls, including my daughter, who's 13, and my wife, and all women and all girls, ensuring that their voices are heard and their bodies are not objects to be used. Religious communities from across the country, including our own, are inviting women to get on buses and planes and trains to show that all have inherent worth and dignity in our country. A show of hands, by the way, if you're going. Just look around, friends. As your minister, I bless you. Number eight, songbirds of faith. 2016, I don't know about you, but it felt like a long, heart-rending memorial service as we said goodbye to people like Muhammad Ali, Eli Wiesel, who I had a class with at Boston University, Shimon Perez, Nancy Reagan, Harper Lee, John Glenn, Gene Wilder, Edward Albee, Gwen Eiffel, Fidel Castro, Princess Leia, and her mom, two days later, Debbie Reynolds. But knowing that nothing loosens the hinges on the doors of the heart like music, we also said goodbye to Prince and his Purple Rain and David Bowie and his Chicha Changes. <laughs> and George Michael, whose songs we can never sing in church because have you heard them? <laughs> I mean, I'm tempted, but we really can't. And of course, of course, Leonard Cohen, whose Jewish and Buddhist roots and lyrics have shed so much light into my life and into yours and wrote not only Hallelujah with its, I think, 67 verses, and I hope TNT, we can play that song this year, but also Come Healing, which one of you, Scott, on the morning after the election emailed to me, reminded me of these lyrics, and let the heavens hear it, the penitential hymn, 
Come healing of the spirit. Come healing of the limb. And of course, who can forget the spiritual and maybe even religious Mr. Dillon, whose lyrics we heard earlier, who I saw in concert with Van Morrison back in 98 in Birmingham, England, as he mumbled his way through the set and me thinking, did I just pay 50, 80 pounds for this ticket? <laughs> but whose Jewish upbringing led him to be one of the only 60s artists, by the way, to sing about the Holocaust, one of the only ones. And after his brief born-again period in the 80s, wrote a number of religious-tinged songs, including this. These are the lyrics. In the time of my confession, in the hour of my deepest need, when the pool of tears beneath my feet floods every newborn seed, there's a dying voice within me reaching out somewhere, toiling in the danger and the morals of despair. I don't have inclination to look back on any mistake. Like Cain, I now behold this chain of events that I must break. In the fury of the moment, I can see the master's hand in every leaf that trembles in every grain of sand. In the fall, Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature for his 50 years of songwriting, many of which feature Jewish and Christian imagery. So thank you, Mr. Robert Zimmerman. All right, number seven. The bathroom is on the left. Emily Heath, who's a UCC minister up in Exeter, New Hampshire, shares a regular joke with her wife. Whenever they're out in public and Emily needs to use the bathroom, she says, okay, honey, if I'm not out in five minutes, come look for me. Emily says they always laugh, but then she says it's not actually funny. And that's because the joke plays in the fact that Emily is a gender non-conforming person. She's not a transgendered person, but she does dress in a way that is in stark contrast to what the world expects. She wears jeans and a baseball cap. And when she dresses up, she loves to wear bow ties. And when she gets her hair cut, the hairdresser only charges her for a man's cut, because it's so short. In the current political climate, where North Carolina, and I think actually just a couple days ago, Texas is passing laws regulating the use of bathrooms by trans and gender nonconforming people, public bathrooms are not a safe space for Emily. She says, here's what happens. She walks into the bathroom with its picture on the front with a woman in a dress. And then a woman on, on her way out looks at her saying, I'm sorry, sir, but this is a woman's room. To which Emily says, yes, I know. And she keeps walking in without waiting for a response. And then Emily reports that later on, that same woman is there with a police officer asking Emily to show her her ID. But sometimes, Emily says, she gets lucky. She'll find a place with a gender-neutral single-stall bathroom, which she says is like hitting the bathroom lottery. Which is why we have here in our building two gender-neutral bathrooms. 
Emily reports wishing she could spend a whole lot less time thinking about bathrooms than she does and why the rest of us need to spend a whole lot more time thinking about creating safe space for transgender people and gender nonconforming people. All right, friends, number six, it is a year of mercy. Now, two years ago in the sermon, I asked if Pope Francis was actually a universalist in Pope's clothing. This is the Pope that concluded this year of mercy by urging pastoral care for divorced and remarried Catholics, of which I have many in my extended family in St. Louis. This is the Pope that held a mass at the U.S.-Mexico border to support immigrants and spoke of the proposed wall by Donald Trump as unchristian. This is the Pope that in a historic Easter first commemorated Jesus' washing of the feet of disciples by washing the feet of three women, three Muslims, and one Hindu man, the first for any pontiff in church history, which is like thousands of years. Francis concluded the year by publishing his book, The Name of God is Mercy. I want us to listen to his words in the prologue. Mercy, he said, is God's identity card and is applied as a healing bomb for the irreparably shattered heart. The fragility of our era is that we seem to doubt the chance for redemption, for a hand to raise you up, for an embrace to save you, and to forgive you and to pick you up and flood you with infinite, patient, indulgent love and to put you back on your feet. Mercy, says Pope Francis, we need you. Praise. We are halfway there, so it's time for an intermission. Best epitaph on a gravestone I'd rather be reading this. <laughs> Best quote for the year, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> Gloria Steinem. And of course, best bumper sticker, giant meteor 2016, just end it already. All right, story number five, Christian conviction in the age of Trump. Now, for those of you who may be inclined to paint Christians and Christianity with a broad brush, you know who you are, and who confuse white evangelical Christianity with all Christianity, this story is for you. Because while it's true that white evangelicals voted for Trump by a four to one margin, primarily because of his plans to nominate Supreme Court judges that will maybe overturn Roe versus Wade. What's also true is that the majority of evangelicals of color opposed Donald Trump. The white cited Trump's pledges for conservative policies as why they supported him, but the black and brown evangelicals said Trump's racist comments and his treatment of women as reasons why they could never support him. I want to be honest with you. 
One of the saddest things to me in my role as your minister is how Christianity and the ministry of Jesus so often gets conflated and confused with conservative politics. A confusion and a conflation that in large part progressive religious people like us have let happen by allowing conservative evangelicals to claim Jesus and claim the Bible for themselves and co-opt both of them. And we, thinking we're doing something radical, just reading Mary Oliver poetry instead. The real radical thing, you who tell me you love to be radical, the real radical thing in the time of Trump is to assemble some Christian convictions of which we are rooted in as Unitarians and Universalists to share these kinds of convictions with people who are appalled by or thrilled by Trump's victory. And they come from Peter Marty, who is the editor of Christian Century. These are Christian convictions. If you practice the Beatitudes of Jesus, you will never be tempted to bully anyone. If you speak truth to power, if you know that weak and vulnerable people need our embrace and not our mockery, if you welcome the stranger and you build bridges of hospitality, if you remember that once you speak a word, it's impossible to unspeak a word, if it's if you remember that it's, it's impossible to tweet a word, then it's impossible to take that tweet back. It is a Christian conviction to never view yourself as above forgiveness. And says Marty, Mr. Trump, please look for a new Bible verse to serve as your favorite because an eye for an eye will just not cut it. Did you know, says Marty to Mr. Trump, that Jesus' whole life was a repudiation of vengeance, his entire life. Well, Mr. Trump, says Marty, the good news is that yours can be too. A request to not let everyone else have those convictions from me to you. Number four, we don't consume the news, the news consumes us. A poll by show of hands, who checks their smartphones for headlines within 30 minutes of going to bed? Be honest with yourself, I'm raising my hand. And keep your hands up or maybe raise your hands if you check those same headlines 30 minutes after waking up. I'm speaking about myself now, but I am troubled by my diet of news. As if I miss a headline, I might have missed a chance to save something in the world, because I think that much of myself, I guess. I wonder what is going on. Is there a desire in us to experience catastrophe vicariously? Is it possible that we yearn for something big to happen, 
but not so big it will actually affect us? A British philosopher and author of a terrific book that I commend to you called News, A User's Manual, believes that in our contemporary culture, news has replaced religion as our central source of guidance and authority. The news, he says, not scripture, not tradition, not sermons, not ministers, not a spiritual practice, not going to church, informs how we handle suffering and how we make moral choices. Wow. In doing so, he says, the desire to know what's going on at all hours of the day and a fear of missing out make us, he says, more shallow and more fearful than we would otherwise ever admit. Because I wonder, friends, how often does hearing the news prompt you to take action on a big issue? How often does taking on a tragic story paralyze you instead of motivate you? How often, this is so true for me, how often does the preponderance of negative stories lead you to forget the family in front of you or the experience of local goodness and beauty? I think that we can afford to miss some news, which is ironic given this sermon. <laughs> I'll admit that. But I wonder if you will take a challenge with me this month, and it's not even the whole month, because what's today? Today's the eighth. So I'm talking, what am I talking, like 22 days, 23 days? Our challenge, and I take this on too, because Karen is there and she will, she's looking at me like, yeah, we'll see how you do on this one. <laughs> our challenge is to try to contain our consumption of headlines to a specific time of the day. Lunch hour, morning, evening, to contain it. And then to use the other times that we would have been reading on our screens to listen to music, to read a book, sit in silence, maybe listen to a sermon that you can now get on podcast, right, Dara? <laughs> or take a walk. Would you raise your hand if you're willing to take this challenge with me? Because I can see now, I can look out and see. I'll check back at the end. Number three, what drives hate? 236 years before an election season that saw Trump vilify Muslims and immigrants and receive backing from white supremacists, and Secretary Clinton referred to some Trump supporters as belonging in a basket of deplorables who are irredeemable. President Washington wrote to a Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, and he said these words, happily, happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction and to persecution no assistance. And even as we laud Washington for writing that, to 
a temple, it's important to remember that he owns slaves, okay? If you've been to Mount Vernon, you can see where they were kept. I say kept and not lived because that's what it was. But Washington's aspiration for our country feels so aspirational this year. So aspirational as I endured a phone call from an angry passerby about how there's no place for our Black Lives Matter banner because it's Trump time now, pastor. And how it's so aspirational when someone dropped off all these letters down the street at a mosque in Whalen telling people that they don't belong here. And more than 300,000 people have now registered as members of the largest white supremacist forum called Stormfront in Vermont. It's so aspirational in a time when the explosion of hate in our country is directly tied to people's ability to use their smartphones and the internet to acquire followers and masquerade as think tanks and raise big bucks. Hatred, wrote C.S. Lewis, who was our probably most important religious writer in the last hundred years. Hatred, he said, is often the compensation by which the frightened person reimburses themselves for the miseries of fear. The more a person fears, Lewis said, the more a person hates. It's a wonderful quote, isn't it? It's a good thing then that in church here, we don't play the reimbursement game. We're focused on showing courage in the face of fear. And we're focused on wearing down the hate with beautiful acts of love. Which leads to question number, or story number two. Just one word, one name, Daniel. Now, who is Daniel? Daniel is a, an inmate in Norfolk prison that John and Bob and Diane and Eileen and Brian and I have mentored since 2011 as he sought to get his college degree through the Prison Behind Bars program that Boston University offers. On Saturday, December 17th, he wrote to us, to all of us here, this letter. Dear Sherburn UU community, I come before you today as Nathan as my avatar <laughs> to express my profound gratitude for the unmerited grace which has been extended to me via your community. The truth is, is that I am a convicted felon with a violent record who has not lived an honorable life. With that said, I've been working for my self-improvement for a long time now and I enrolled in 2011 into a college program which is how I was matched with a team from your community. And despite my initial fear, I opened myself up because I knew I needed some support. It turned out to be the best decision I have ever made. Because before this team built a bridge of humanity to me, I had endured an eight-year period of isolation without a single visitor. Now I have a team of people coming to see me every three weeks. 
The group has never faltered, and they made sure that I never did either. And since connecting with this team, I have accomplished far more from a cell than I ever did on the streets. I've not received a single disciplinary report. I've published a book. I've captained a debate team to a win over Boston College. And I made the dean's list. And on December 15th, you community of Sherburne, I completed my bachelor's degree with a, I'm not bragging, Daniel says, 3.8 GPA. Education has changed my worldview. But more importantly, your team has changed me. You see, this letter really isn't about me. It's about you. It's about you and the often unseen impact you have on the lives of people like me that you will never meet, maybe. My successes, says Daniel, are your successes because as my team has taught me, the best investment you can ever make is an investment in the humanity of someone else. Thank you all, says Daniel, for investing in me with friendship and gratitude and respect. Daniel Throop. And number one, our last story, friends. Other stories you did not hear in 2016 to help us become intentionally tender. The story of Jim Estill, CEO of a Canadian appliance company who personally sponsored 58 Syrian families at a cost of $1.5 million to himself by bringing them to Canada, finding them homes, and giving them jobs. Of the Islamic Center of Greater Lansing, Michigan, that offered a temporary home to the UU congregation there in that city, Minister Catherine, I know very well, after delays from a construction project, threatened the UU church's ability to have worship services. Or of the Muslim community in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, who in September held its sixth annual blood drive in honor of the 9-11 victims, giving over course of these years, 40,000 pints of blood and saving over 100,000 people's lives. Or of Jiva Akbor, who while traveling to S Spain from Scotland was confronted by a woman in the seat next to her, Beverly, who was typing, Jiva was, the word Allah in a text message after her friend's car was broken into the night before, saying, I will pray to Allah for you. But Beverly saw that text message and went and got the air stewardess with panic in her eyes and asked her what was she doing on the plane. And when Jiva told Beverly that Allah simply means God in English and that she was texting her friend because of the car that had been broken into, Beverly fell down on the floor of the plane and apologized profusely and said, it is so scary what the headlines make me think. I just panicked. And Jiva and Beverly ended up having a three-hour heart-to-heart conversation for the rest of the flight there. 
Now, if you've been tempted to curse away 2016, as I have, remember these other facts that you missed in your newsfeed. In 2016, wild salmon spawned in the Connecticut River for the first time since the Revolutionary War. Crowdfunding raised a million dollars for the kids of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile to go to college. Both of those men were killed in police shootings this year. Denmark became the first country to stop defining transgender people as having a mental illness. Black incarceration went down and death penalties became illegal in half the world's countries. And then in 2016, and maybe especially even now in this new year, you have tried your very best to call yourself both spiritual and, my friends, religious, and not be ashamed or quiet or shh. Where are you going? I'm going to shh church on Sunday morning. <laughs> because we have a gospel to be proud of, and we need our voices to be heard. You, I love you. I love you, and you renew me. And there are so many stories of tenderness and hope that shine light into the world that according to our news feeds can seem dark and hate-filled. Darkness is everywhere. It is, frankly and ironically, easy to see. Tenderness is not. Tenderness needs to be practiced. I want us to practice together. If we don't, we will miss it. So friends, Happy New Year and amen.